This is Mysterioso. I'm your host, Terry Tapp. Uh, my guest this week is Dylan Rice. He is a writer for The Independent here in New York City, and he's an IWW member. Uh, Dylan attended the Labor Notes Conference, which took place in Chicago uh, just recently. I think that was last weekend, right? Yeah, just last weekend. Yeah, I thought so. I, uh, I listened uh, through Zoom. And I was really inspired by it. So I want to talk to Dylan about that and just get a little back and forth between us uh, regarding this very inspiring event. So how are you doing, Dylan? I'm doing well. Uh, and thank you for having me on. Well, of course, I really appreciate that you took time for this. I mean, I know everyone's really busy right now, but at this, you know, this was incredible. Uh, just really incredible. And uh, well, you went. Tell me about your experience with the conference. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, I had reached out because I saw uh, that they it was a group of people offering financial aid. It was Labor Notes itself uh, offering financial aid to people interested in going but not having the means to go. Uh, and I'm I'm just working retail in New York. Uh, I had a lot of money in my pocket, so I reached out. And I let them know like I'm in the IWW. I'm very interested in labor. I'm young. I interned for a union, and I want to just get more involved in labor. Not expecting to hear back, you know, I was like, it's a big conference. They they actually had to cap off the attendees at 4,000. So I was like, yeah, the odds of me getting in are low. But they got back to me. Uh, they provided me with full financial aid. They covered my registration fee, and they got me all set ready to go. Uh, and so I made my way to Chicago from New York, uh, and I volunteered to help them. So thank you uh, for a shift uh, what ended up being setting up the banquet that they had on Saturday. Uh, but I got to Chicago Friday morning. I left LaGuardia at six and got into O'Hare, I think, around late seven or eight o'clock. And then I got my stuff in a little inn down the road from the Hyatt Regency where the conference was actually taking place. And then I, I showed up and I was immediately, <laughs> I think flabbergasted is the only way to say it. The minute I walked in the, the hotel lobby, it was just wall to wall no space a line stretching like a snake through the entire thing of people wearing union gear young and old from every part of the country see just before you get into the scene further i just want to say you know um i've been involved in uh left politics labor things like this probably uh it's hard to say exactly when but uh, you know my father was on strike a lot in the 80s uh grandfather Things like this. So I, I participated, but I wasn't a member. I was you know, mm. just an affected party. But then in the late 80s into the 90s, and uh, I, I was very involved and very involved in the late 90s. I joined the IWW and uh, I followed these these developments. So just for you to say this is to me incredible because there was a time when, uh, you know, any sort of uh, labor or left event was sparsely attended. In fact, mm. uh, I know uh, there was a paper for the Socialist Labor Party back in the 90s, and uh, they were uh, discussing having some sort of meeting, and it was, you know, it was enough people to fill a small room, basically, uh, which is unfortunate. I mean, you know, I'm not I'm digging on anyone, but just what you're telling me now is incredible. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, and uh, to that degree, I mean, I think we all can trace the the lineage of the resurgence in leftist activity and specifically labor with, you know, the disenchantment with the post Obama years following the election of Trump 
and the defeat of Sanders in the primary. I think a lot of younger people specifically got engaged on this idea of what, in, in essence, again, the United States were, were very much behind uh, step of our, you know, our allies in Europe. And what is leftism in the United States? Yeah, right, right. Bernie is less radical in some degrees than Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And Very less we, radical people. Yeah, we, we're basically picking up the pieces of what once was, not something we've never achieved. But America, since the Reagan years, you know, the 70s and the decline of everything that happened with the Great Society, has basically done a reset where the Puritan, capitalistic, hyper hyper neoliberal mentality has dominated for so long and we're finally seeing the end result of it which is the decay of the liberties we often take for granted we're seeing it in the effect of the trump presidency even post-trump presidency with the democratic party essentially being toothless that everything yeah. we were told was possibly going to happen with you know bernie losing to hillary is very much happening and yeah. There's a sense of urgency that I think propelled 4,000 people to show up to Chicago when Labor Notes said previously it's been like 1,000. That's, that's a, <laughs> a massive increase. And specifically younger people, it's the generation of post-neoliberalism realizing that this is the one way that we can get back to where we should have been, where we were in the late 30s, early 40s of just concentrated power in the working class and middle class. Yeah, I, I want to pause on these things because I, I want to explore them a little. You know, um, I, I'm always intrigued about how we pick up the pieces because mm. my grandfather uh, was a communist and he, like me, like, you know, our family's all from Kentucky. Um, he had experience with, uh, as a kid, really, with some of the things that were going on down there in the 30s. But when you get into the 40s, you have a, a destruction of all that radicalism, as you know, as you were alluding to, and, and, and we all know with through the McCarthy era and things mm. like this. But I actually saw uh, with my own eyes the takedown of union power by Reagan when he yeah. announced the firing of the PACCO workers. And my grandfather said, you know, there should be a general strike. Well, I've discussed this with people that are older than me, not much older even, but more cognizant of that time period. And this was something discussed by many people, like, what do we do about this? We should be responding. And we didn't. And yeah. it, it was the beginning of a, a total collapse of working class power. And as you pointed out, and here we are. And it's interesting to see, you know, older people, myself, younger people, uh, interpreting these events from different sets of eyes, you know, and, uh, and, and wondering how the hell we get anywhere at this point. So, yeah, it, it was, it was amazing. It was like four times, as you said, that they're, they're maxing out a thousand, usually expecting a thousand. They've got 4,000 people mm -hmm. and overwhelmingly young. Yes. Yeah, very much so. Uh, and I think that does point to the fact that this movement is naturally becoming what it is in itself it's not it's not this reactionary response which is in a way a lot of what trumpism is it's the older generation realizing that the failings of what they were promised is coming true the idea of the trickle-down economics they're reacting in a negative way in the sense of the stream was real it's being corrupted by yeah. individuals you know we don't really have to explain who the blame is going towards we all know it's a racial divide 
and it's it's a very it's the easiest way it's been done in American history to divide working class people through race. And yeah, so it's right. it's it's propagated in that mindset. But I think the youth are realizing that that dream was never true in the first place. We weren't diluted. We didn't have the benefit of the Great Society, the remnants of the New Deal that had made it to the baby boomer generation and even Generation X. We had none of it. We've had this concept of progress festered on us and this this very loose definition of progress, which is clearly not very structural with the way it's being torn down day by day. And the economic reality of just basically being hopeless. We're seeing articles that are entitled Millennials and Gen Z just have to accept they'll never own anything. They will be forever renting, whether it be their property or whether it be media, the idea of streaming and all this stuff. It's just the idea that that house and white picket fence idea that built the middle class in the 30s, 40s and 50s is simply completely fantastical to us now. And now that we're waking up to it, we understand that any of that mobility that was achieved by the previous generations was through organized labor. And that's why labor notes has exploded in attendance. You know, this is, this is fascinating to me to hear because um, again, you know, seeing the world now through uh, different sets of eyes of mine, but also hearing, you know, originally from older people and then from, you know, now younger people, I, uh, I, was firmly in the the generation we're now calling Generation X, and I saw things crumble uh, in that time period, you know, in the 80s and into the 90s, and uh, I saw the, the tiniest bit of the 70s, of which I was cognizant, when there was actual like a uh, still a, a strong working class resistance. And I remember how it felt. You know, there was still this remnant of working class power coming from, you know, uh, the not total dissolution of things, you know, trickling through the 60s and such. And I think the 70s had some of the most uh, widespread, massive strikes the country had seen, you know, since the 40s. But then the 80s, like there was a there was a change over that uh, affected the entire country about dismissing ideas that were associated with the left dismissing anything that was considered radical uh, i had a teacher at the beginning of the 80s in a late elementary school middle school who said uh, i'm so glad reagan has come in because people were disrespecting authority and now people are cutting their hair they're wearing nicer clothes sweaters and penny loafers and they're saying yes ma'am and yes sir obediently and I was sickened by I say yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. As a, <laughs> as a training, but I don't do it out of you know uh, obedience to authority. So yeah, it, this is it's fascinating. Like if my daughter is twenty and she's also an IWW member, and uh, I hear the despair from her. Like there's there's just nothing anyone would have. At, no home, as you said. There's no you know the the smoke of my backside of uh, an American dream was pretty much over when I was a kid, but you could still kind of get high on it. You know, it wasn't totally over. And if you were in the right place, you could still get a home. And uh, some jobs weren't terrible in terms of pay. There were bits, but for younger people, there's nothing. Mm. 
Yeah, I agree 100 percent. I mean, it it's difficult because the day to day aspects of our lives are and to some degree better with the technology we have. The uh, just really, honestly, technology is a huge crux of it. Uh, the yeah. advent of cell phones and everything like that, we feel more interconnected. It feels like we're living a much more leisurely life. But in reality, right. it's not really the case. We, you know, on social media, it's a rule. You present only the good aspects of your life. You show the best <laughs> things happening. Like it, that's that's that participatory engineered false reality that we're all kind of engaged in of going, oh, we're not losing our minds. We're not struggling to get by. We're doing fine because we were told, and this has always been throughout American history, that to be successful, you have to act successful. To be a member of American society, you have to be an active and participant and willing member of that society. And that to deviate, to talk about things that nobody wants to talk about, be it Black Lives Matter in a majority white community. Nobody wants to discuss that because then you're breaking that illusion. Good and so I think, it. yeah, it's it's something that I think my generation is tackling on directly because – it, we've seen the result of letting the wheel go, letting our hands off the wheel and saying, we don't have any direct power. We're just participating in this grand process, but we're not really the ones running it. And we don't have that instilled fear of this Soviet threat, which <laughs> helped. You know, it really did. It helped Reagan and crew and McCarthy before him right. explain in terms of geopolitical necessity that. Oh, you know, people deserve the the fair wage. People deserve all that stuff. But communism and socialism and this militancy and this radicalism that threatens America is an internal threat. And it will destroy your livelihood because these Bolsheviks across the ocean are going to come in, take your guns, destroy your society. We've also if you haven't seen Red Dawn, watch Red Dawn to get the mind of a Reaganite. I haven't, but I've I've, I've <laughs> I lived through the era and, you know, um, people. Today, talk about QAnon and the nonsense regarding that, and it is nonsense. I'm not mm. going to qualify that in any way. But um, I remember when uh, Hal Lindsey, uh, who hopefully you don't know, but he uh, he's still around, I believe, and he was on the History Channel. I was uh, I was at somebody's place a couple of years ago, or somewhere it might have been my folks, and I saw him on the History Channel in the 80s. He wrote these books about uh, Armageddon, and they they were bestsellers. And people would point out that uh, on Gorbachev's head was the mark of the beast. <laughs> that <laughs> lovely birthmark that he sparked. Yeah, his yeah. birthmark. It identified him. And uh, and this is the thing, uh, not to deviate too much, but just to point this out. You know, he, um, Hal Lindsey, people gave me uh, his book, his famous one, The Late Great Planet Earth, to read. And in The Late Great Planet Earth, which you should, if you if you have the time to have this kind of toilet reading um he um he pointed out that the book of revelations was very clear about the soviet union and communism and how um this great battle was coming and he he lined it all up and so i was shocked that he was on the history channel because i thought (laughs) if, if i'm telling you that uh, this particular football team was mentioned in the Bible, and then they're no longer around. How am I going to rework myself as a public intellectual <laughs> with that kind of failure? It's like a lot of these religious movements, uh, some of whom have, have are now mainstream, that have predicted the end of the world over and over enough until they get 
they hit a war or they hit something that they could say, well, that's what I really meant. You know, it wasn't the Soviet Union. It was uh, terrorism or something. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the Soviet threat was always an easy thing uh, for people to use. And it was always a burden for people on the left because they would have to point out that they weren't talking about that. And uh, I remember someone said my grandfather was talking and uh, someone that was over in our house said something about the Soviet Union and what happened. He said, no, I'm not talking about Bolsheviks. And, uh, and it was a prominent theme. So here we are. It's, it's curious to me, too. Um, there's an entire movement of nostalgia for the Soviet Union. Mm. I, I did a lot of reading in 2020 of some English language books of uh, people who lived there. And uh, there's a movement to uh, that of, of missing it, basically. And it's, it's very strange to me because some of it, having lived, uh, been alive when it existed, some of it's uh, almost nonsensical and some of it's very practical. Mm. But uh, but now reading about it, it was, it was compared to what we have, especially what younger people in this country have. It was golden in many ways. Yeah. And for me, especially as a wobbly, I mean, my my opinions on anything involved in leftism mainly revolve around labor and the right. idea that the the best way to tackle capitalism is to have direct socialism, the workers taking over the means of production through syndicalism, these unions and empowering unions to really form that one big union that the working class is no longer negotiating. It's dictating surrender terms. That's how I've always yes. framed things. It's no longer about trying to secure meager scraps, better meager scraps than before. It's getting our share of what we've actually created, which is all of it. We have evolved yeah. past the need for this type of back and forth with the capitalist class in the sense that how things are going, even on a technological scale, is that work is becoming obsolete in some degrees. A lot of the jobs that exist today are simply there to have employment, to facilitate employment, because obviously yeah. they're not at any point about to open up their coffers and be like, let's provide a universal basic income. It's not realistic right now. So we're essentially, as a working class, kept in a state of suspension. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. It's a degrading state of suspension. And we're finally waking up and understanding. And I look back to the Wobblies to understand what their situation was at the time, but I am not nostalgic for the past because they yeah. lost in the past. They made mistakes that we cannot replicate. I look to the past for context, but I look to the future for what we need to do. And I don't view the IWW as a nostalgia club. I view it as the only solution to the problems we're facing, which is why I'm personally a member. See, what you're saying is beautiful. And uh, I have to tell you why it's, I find it, really moving uh, when i became much more politically involved in the 90s it um in particular with the iww let me just point that out but you know anarchism which really attracted me attracted me more than marxism because marxism to me was attached to a lot of bureaucracy mm -hmm. and bureaucratic thinking whether that's legitimate or not and i it's not ultimately legitimate but but skipping that I was attracted to anarchism and anarchists uh, were almost a joke at the time because it usually meant that you're some sort of punk, that you're some sort of loser, that you can't have, don't have your life together. Uh, it was goofball. 
a lot of people. And a lot of anarchist zines and uh, anarchist materials were kind of like that. Um, they were very loosely constructed, um, etc. When the movements began, especially with the protest movement, they changed and they became much more structured and focused and serious. And you see it, the publication Lumpen, you see it in there where it, it, a lot of it was fart jokes and uh, pulling pranks on people. It was funny and little bits of, you know, things like this. But once you actually have Seattle occur and you have a serious anarchist movement taking place that unites with labor unions, that unites with, uh, you know, worker solidarity houses and things like this, then you, uh, you it changed. And uh, the IWW at the time, I can actually speak to that. When I joined, I joined because um, I was having tr- trouble at work. And I thought, you know, these methods, some of which I heard from my grandfather, some of which I knew from history, some of which I tried uh, somewhat. Um, I should be more focused in them because I'm just getting run over. And I, I organized, I organized, I sort of led a couple of walkouts that do nothing, but at least you're not at work and you're not putting up with things. But they had no, re- they had no um, stick stick And so um, I, I joined and I found the IWW at the time to be uh, a wash in nostalgia. The, it was all full of professors and graduate mm-hmm. students, and a few people doing some very serious work, a lot of whom have been forgotten, actually, and, and aren't mentioned in books about the IWW. But the majority of people were there as a, a history club. And um, there was a lot of pushback to what was eventually going on in this shipyard, which kind of, kind of became a big thing in which I was working. But I was listening to a podcast the other day about the IWW, or it was about a guy who was involved in uh, communications or something like that or running for it. And he was talking about um, communicating internally and externally as uh, an officer in the IWW. And I thought, this is boring. (laughs) And and he admitted it and he was happy, as was I, because most of life is not these grand strikes and these poses. You know, it's 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 paperwork and it's scut work. And and having people dedicated to that that aren't just there to play historical games, uh, that tells you something really powerful is going on. Yes. So I'm, yeah. I'm feeding it back to you, but I wanted to, to insert that because I, to hear you say that and then uh, hopefully your response or whatever response you're going to have to the, the Labor Notes Conference. Mine was that there was no nostalgia. No one was you know, playing this kind of Knights of Labor hobo thing, which was fun, but I saw this a lot and it's wonderful. It's, but it's, uh, it's done, you know? Yeah. Uh, the idea like this, yeah. And I've, uh, joke with people about even like on the topic of the Soviet, uh, I guess in the sense, nostalgia of just Mm -hmm. this idea of this glorious past. Uh, it is just as conservative as conservatism. (laughs) Yeah. This this idea that we have to reach back to the past and go backwards in time to figure out how to go forward when so much has changed since those times and it's only changing at an exponential rate. And that's by its own nature with technology increasing. It's the hockey stick of progress. It's only going further, further upwards at a faster rate. And to to think in terms of the past is insane. What we need to do is pick 
the ideas and concepts that worked in the past, adapt them for the future, and also learn from what's going on now. Because if you drop the Wobbly from 1905 into Starbucks right now, <laughs> they would have no idea how to organize it. And that's just yeah. a fact. It's just a fact. And, you know, I, I quote Big Bill all the time. I have not read Marx's Capital, but I have the Marx's Capital on my back. All these <laughs> quotes are great, and they get points across to people. But we cannot be a quote factory. We cannot be a nostalgia factory. We cannot have a red card as a prop. The red card needs to represent power for workers. It needs to put fear in the hearts of capitalists and, and bulls and bosses and everybody in the way that it did once. And it's not by pretending it's the past. It's by making that future now and actually doing the, like you said, that the grunt work unions cannot just be strike protest strike, because unfortunately, and this is a big problem with the left. I've seen it even in the context of abortion rights, people show up for a March, they protest and they think that cops are taking detailed notes about their concerns and the politicians are watching and going, you know what, folks, I never thought about it that way. And you go home and they sign a bill that says, all right, from now on and until the end of humanity, we're going to be the good guys. It's not how it works. It's about really getting involved in the movement, taking a direct hand in these organizations and molding them to be powerful for the working class. We can't you, you can't sign a petition online to get Nancy Pelosi to grow a conscience. It's not going to work. <laughs> That's not how any of this works. Where I come from a syndicalist perspective is that quite literally the only thing that makes these people move is money. And when we have control over that wealth, we are the ones in control of everything. That's the idea. The working class can no longer just be at the receiving end of these decisions. We need to be making these decisions for ourselves and not reacting. We need to be proactive. You know, the, I, I love everything you're saying, and we'll get into details. I mean, we're, 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 we're talking uh, in, in overarching themes right now, but there's a thing that I'm beginning to hear from what you're saying that I think is a, a vital point that we keep missing. And that is, uh, yeah, I heard a talk, but well, that is working class culture and the daily life that we live and its dedication to these things. I heard a talk by Mark Fisher of Zero Books, uh, who wrote Capitalist Realism. And he uh, he was my age. He took his life in 2017. But he set up. He said if you went back to the 70s which is really the last time we had a, a, a strong working class presence culturally uh, what would you see and one thing you would see is this life life lived as working class people and he began to talk about it and i what he said resonated with me because what he said i've lived and what that is is this you had uh, a, a large union presence uh, in the country. I, forget, I don't know the numbers of percentage of workers, but my father was in the union. My grandfather was in the union. Most of the neighbors were in unions. Everyone had a union hall and mm -hmm. those, you know, and the unions uh, officiated weddings. You know, even the Teamsters, uh, Local 89, I lived by that and was a member in Kentucky. You could have your wedding there. You had a little crappy gym you could go to there. You could go and have, uh, you know, they didn't, uh, 
officially recognize it, but a little religious service. You know, you could you could have a family gathering and host a party there. That's where you did these things. I talked to a, a friend of mine who's a couple of generations, well, about 20 years older than me, and she uh, she grew up in Anderson, Indiana, and she said you know, it was a big industrial town and everyone was unionized. The union hall functioned as one of the main social hubs, like a church. Yep. And that's that's why I'm saying, you know, it's just a, a really stupid point on this, but it, it does make the point. The steelworkers, uh, whom my father was a member, had a bowling league and they they had a youth steelworkers bowling league and you'd bowl against the children of other union members. So as a little kid, uh, I guess a nine year old, 10 year old, I got on the steelworkers bowling league. I mean, you gave it other names, but it was like Steelworkers Kids, and then you were the Wildcats or the Hawks or something. And uh, I, you know, I remember sitting there talking with these other little kids, drawing, waiting for my ball, my bowling ball to come up. And uh, and you know, you would know that there was a contract negotiation that people might go out on strike. You know, there was a discussion that was very lively and and very boring because it was practical it was like buying new shoes or taking a car to a shop well this contract is coming up they're going to offer this i think this is going to happen we might go on strike there's a strike fund these people are prepared somebody's needs work my dad you know on one strike delivered phone books people need some construction work done you know this was a, a very boring daily topic that you might have and the kids knew this and Fisher was pointing this out, as I'm saying, there there was a whole culture. You know, I, I don't want to give a a, 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 a a spin on this press where this will appear as mysterioso. But that's one little thing I'm trying to do is have like a, a working class culture of literature, of poetry, of, uh, of street tales. You know, so you're not just reading Marx, uh, which is, Marx is fascinating. But, you know, it shouldn't be this dry uh, theoretical work all the time. You should have uh, something juicier and something more attractive and, and like, you know, Steinbeck even or Dickens. Mm-hmm. And we don't we that's not really available culturally any more than a union hall where, you know, you're going to have your wedding. You're, you're going to uh, have a funeral or whatever you have, but some some function like that. Anyway, I'm hearing that from you because we need this really quotidian idea of working class life you know with the iww when i joined there was an event i went to and it was guys playing banjos and uh talking about being hobos all of which was fun but it it was a mask a costume people were putting on that had nothing to do with their daily existence yes yeah cosplaying you could call it yeah and i i wonder you know, in in people as 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 the past recedes even further away from us, and you know, it, I'm hearing from you, and I heard from the conference, people aren't burdened with the Soviet experiment. They aren't burdened with the legacy of a Stalin and things like this. So in fact, it's it's almost forgotten. Um, you know, I wonder if that's like a um, a scab <laughs> that's fallen <laughs> away. I mean, the IWW had this beautiful. Um, idea of the hobo and, and it is beautiful I, I, I love the the image uh, like John Dos Passos in his uh, his books had a lot of wobbly characters and mm-hmm. he called it the vag the vagabond 
and uh, it's this wonder and it's just spiritually very beautiful. But he really it, it was um, turned into nostalgia actually by the IWW because it was dying out when the IWW formed. It was really something from the Knights of Labor and that yeah. era. And uh, a lot of the songs that we attribute to the IWW and think that's, you know, these are this is nostalgia for that time. That was nostalgia for the other time. Mm-hmm. So it was already being played in this way. And I, now I wonder if it's just it's gotten too old to have a positive or negative effect. Yeah, and I, th- I think it ties into even what you're talking about, the working class culture, like this deficit of a working class culture is in a way by design. The idea that. In the post-80s world, success is determined by, you know, uh, sharp clothes. It almost adopted the aesthetics of the 1920s, but with a new spin on just the greed without the foresight of the Gilded Age. Like, the Gilded Age is what gave groups like the IWW and the Knights of Labor a very clear reason to exist and popular support. Because, unfortunately, this is the reality often, people don't act until it's too late. You have to act. And so when conditions get so bad... And people start waking up. That's often when we're at our weakest. We're on our back foot. The history of the working class is constantly on our back foot, falling a little bit further and further back. And sometimes we can get our second foot down. But right when we get our second foot down, we go, oh, we're balanced now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And we get reactive. caught off guard. And yeah. it's, it's been consistent, that kind, of, uh, that kind of back and forth. But I'll say, like, in the case of, you know, someone that very stereotypical, it's often a conservative critique of, any leftist or self uh, self described communist, Marxist, whatever. It's a kid at a private university that was paid for by the parents, sitting in the library in the nice Brooks Brothers shirt, <laughs> reading Karl Marx's Capital Capital and going, you know what? This guy's on to something. <laughs> yeah. And you threw him in a dark in a dock in a dockyard or a in a mine or a factory or hell, even just a the back of a fast food restaurant, something more modern, not all workers of this Marxian idea of a guy in an overall wielding a hammer. It's yeah. people processing stuff on a, on a cashier, on a, on a cash register. These are workers. They, they would not be able to have that conversation because in all honesty, and people like that, unfortunately, I don't mean to criticize solidarity, solidarity, but you're not really working class. I'm working class. My first job as a kid was a dishwasher. I was underage. I wasn't allowed to work at that time. It's off the books. And I was just washing dishes in a restaurant just to get money to save up. It's the only way I can make money. And I've been working. Is that here in New York City? No, this is so I grew up for context of my own history. I grew up on Long Island and my folks grew up in awful conditions. Uh, My mom became the mother of her house when her mom left at a really young age and had to deal with trouble at home a whole bunch of stuff my dad uh his his mom his family split up and he was traveling with his mom a lot moving town to town and literally getting chased by loan sharks to mm. to get them to to get him to tell them where his mom was bribing mm. him with toys and shit and like awful heinous heinous things going on for people working class people just growing up on long island and they got union jobs my mom it was a shop steward for the Teamsters. And my dad, critique in a certain way, trust me, we had lots of conversations, was a corrections officer for Nassau County. It was a union job. And so we were able to put a roof over our heads. And growing up, they were at work a lot. I didn't get to see them too often. We had babysitters often. But steadily and steadily and steadily as time went on, we got a little bit more financially secure. 
And we are financially secure. And I've always described to people that what I have is the bare, it should be the bare minimum for everyone. It's perfectly acceptable. We can go on vacation sometimes. Can't do it all the time. We have to work. We still have to work to live. But we can take time off. I went to college. Me, my siblings are the first in our family to go to college and get a degree. We have these opportunities because of the work we've done. And I worked throughout college. Every semester, no matter what, no matter how busy I was, I was still working a part-time job as many days as I could. That's working class. And I don't, I'm not trying to gatekeep. I don't want to say yes. that anybody can't be involved in these movements. Everybody can. But there is a very real disconnect between someone just studying university, these theories, and going to talk to people in the Midwest, in the South, in the rural areas of the North. That's the, the Democratic Party has abandoned agricultural workers in these areas because uh, the cultural differences are too big. We, we can't connect with them. They're working class people. I have more in common with a farmer in South Dakota than I do with Jeff Bezos. Yes. It, it, there's, there's such a, a, a strong, unawakened connection between working class people that was purposely broken by neoliberalism, by conservatism, to the extent that my dad growing up in that poverty is a conservative because what he was looking for was stability. He wanted something that was solid. He worked hard. He got his money. He did it on his own. That was his idea, right? And so conservatism was a natural one-to-one for him. But in reality, it's the union. I mean, it's, it's the police union. But that idea, that kind of solidarity that those people took to get that union is what gave him this opportunity. And I understand where he's coming from and I can empathize. But the one thing we always agree on is the, the difference between the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, the working class and the non-working class, because he's worked. And he's made a good living for himself. But we can have that conversation on the same terms when we argue about plenty of other stuff. We both agree the system is not fair. And that is how we connect with working class people. We're all experiencing this system. We've been tricked into geographical differences, religious differences, racial differences. Does not matter. We are all experiencing the existence of economic exploitation which is how the IWW and its inception crossed these barriers with race, with sex, with locations. It was simple as saying, we're all workers. That's what unites us. The rest we can discuss afterwards. But at the end of the day, how much money are you getting in your pocket? And how much is your boss making? And that is a unifying concept. And one thing, too, uh, you're totally exactly right on this. But another thing as well is that uh, as you were talking about, you know, the, the people getting uh, together at the last minute, you know, the IWW, and I didn't mean for this whole discussion to be that, but that's fine, frankly. Uh, the, the IWW was formed to be proactive. Mm-hmm. A lot of the trade unions that uh, were grouped under the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, were there to uh, to secure pay and secure uh, jobs for their members at particular job sites in particular crafts. And they would uh, things would happen to them and they would organize on that basis. The IWW was formed to have a, a, a forward vision 
of a world in which workers owned the tools, workers owned the fields, workers owned the factories, workers owned the rest of whatever you have. But I, I hate to use the term means of production because it sounds so academic. But they, but they, that was the point that you don't simply react to what's being done to you, but you take charge and you move forward to grab what you think is rightfully yours, which I, I agree is rightfully yours. And uh, and you're you're right. Like by doing that, you have to understand that you can't have these artificial divisions that have been uh, maintained by the AFL. You couldn't have unskilled labor because those are lumping. They're not you who's a trained carpenter or whatever you might be, a wheelwright. You like you work for that. This other guy, he's nothing. Or if he's black or if he's uh, a foreigner or a, a woman, like, women were kept out as well. So, yeah, we, if you're going to move forward with a vision uh, of proactive working class power, you have to get rid of all those uh False limitations. And yeah, that, I, you know, it's it's really beautiful. Thinking back to this uh, this conference here, you got there and you're in Chicago and it's packed with people at the, the hotel. Yeah. Can we pick it up from there as to what your experience was? Yeah, yeah, and I'm uh, sorry to deviate. Uh, no, I'm, you I'm could the, deviate. There's no rule to this. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm I, a, this was beautiful and inspiring. What you're saying is beautiful and inspiring. This thanks. is all fine. I'm a habitual context provider. I tend to go back to the beginning of humanity and then come. All right. So what happened on Sunday? <laughs> yeah, well, that's fine. That's, like I said, there are no rules to it. All right. Yeah. So speaking on labor notes specifically, I got there and it was quite literally like, well, well I mean, they I, I got in a little bit later than I intended to. I was trying to uh, fun anecdote. As I was leaving my apartment to go to the airport, I realized that my previous knot tying on my shoe was a little too intense and I could not get my shoe on and I could not untie the knot. So I had to cut the lace off in front of LaGuardia Airport and hobble into the airport with a shoe missing its lace. I had one shoe with lace, one shoe without. Got to Chicago and was waiting to see if I could grab a shoelace from a shoe store in the airport. They didn't have any. And the shoe repair place did not open until after the conference started. So I, you know. So I had my pride and I showed up to the hotel and thankfully the shoe fit well enough, but I wasn't literally limping, but <laughs> embarrassing. So I got in a little bit later and everybody was already there. Like I got in probably, I don't know, nine Oh five and registration had opened and the line was just so long and snaking left and right. Like as much as they could do to fit into this room. And they eventually came up to us and said, look, after this, you go to the first conference and after the first conference or first workshop, come back and get registered because we're going to be late. It's just that long of a line. So I went to the first workshop. Great. And I, it immediately kicked off. I was purposely going to stuff that I found to me the most useful because obviously I want to organize labor. That's something I want to do uh, personally. That's the line of work I want to get into. But I was also just going to workshops that either someone told me about they thought I'd be interested in. Or ones that just called my attention. I went to ones like Direct Action. I went to one about industrial organizing. And to me, the greatest aspect of it all was that every workshop was mixed. There wasn't uh, a habit of people from, let's say, a specific trade just going to their trade. It didn't feel like it was clicks of people just, you know, as a as a mess uh, yeah. going to those workshops specifically relevant to them. It was genuinely a well-mixed group in every single workshop and attending with that amount of people. I mean, the attendance every workshop was incredibly high. 
but there was a lot of conversations, especially if it was a uh, uh, if it, it came about that, let's say a younger person brought up their efforts. Uh, an elder in the movement would say, hey, for context, here's what we did. And it was an exchange of ideas, an exchange of stories, anecdotes, everything, jokes, plenty of jokes about uh, the folks that grew up in the 70s and experiencing the shifts in you know, leftism in that environment, weather underground, all that jazz. Right. And it was it's to, to the degree, without sounding sappy, it was incredibly inspiring because I was scared there never was going to be an epilogue of leftism, that it was always just it happened. It's gone now. And now we're just trying not to have a 1984 situation where you wake up and there's a big screen telling you it's time to go to work. I, you know, there is a lot of pessimism involved. And I think being a leftist and to see that the defiance was still so present that the my generation understands where we are from a historical perspective, but is not nostalgic, is not looking to them to give us the answers. We're explaining what we're doing. We're not looking right. for, hey, how do you do this? We're saying, oh, this is what we did and it worked. We organized Amazon. We organized Starbucks because we said no to what had not worked in the past. And it was a mutual appreciation between everyone. It was never a, oh, these young kids, these new union people don't know what we went through. It was just genuine appreciation across the board. Yeah, that's something I heard. Um overall and uh you know the the business union models the the things that haven't worked there was no fight about that there was no combativeness among people as to strategy and i think part of that was just the recognition that the starbucks organizing the amazon organizing worked and so you 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 can't argue with people who have succeeded mm -hmm. and you can't defend failure against that so and the, the people who succeeded uh are younger people and as you said they've thrown out listening to uh people preach about things that failed and it that was inspiring i, I really liked hearing chris small's talk uh about what took place in amazon at amazon uh you know one thing about that that uh, has moved me every time uh, you know i go back to it in my mind he sacrificed a year of his life. He, he lived, what was he living in the bus station? More or less, yeah. Basically yeah. camped out there. Yeah, he got fired and he basically dedicated himself to this. Well, he didn't basically, he did dedicate himself to this and sacrificed. This is something, you know, this is something I note about um, the difference between people that really make any sort of change and the people who are there in costume. This, if you look back at the history of left politics, those people in the IWW who really made something happen, those people in the anarchist movement, the people in the, the actual communist or socialist movements, they made something happen by agreeing to sacrifice themselves. And that's been missing for quite a while. The return of it is fascinating to me, and I'm almost uh, wondering in my mind here if uh, if it's because of hopelessness. Like, I, you know, in the 80s, people didn't want to sacrifice their lives because 
there might be a carrot at the end of the the rope. Mm. You know, you mm-hmm. might be you, you might get that house. You might actually be able to take that vacation. Not a lot, but you might get it still. And uh, you know, you might have a little respectability, uh, a title, uh, a retirement plan. But uh, you know, if you're younger, all that stuff that uh, you you could snort is gone. So maybe the sacrifice becomes practical. Yeah, it's it's knowing there's skin in the game is the <laughs> difference between, you know, a bureaucrat at the top of a union who's raking in the six figure salary from dues who hasn't done the work in years, if they had ever done it and can, you know, make a big speech sound like a radical. And then when they go behind the scenes, they're making sweetheart deals with these companies and they're. You know, not actually showing solidarity with other unions. It's almost like a pissing contest. Like, uh, there's no friendship. Uh, there's no solidarity. There's no connectivity between the union movement. It's a club. And it's their club. And they'll take their pieces and go home if they don't like how you're playing. And I think that there is a strong rejection of that, which is fostered out of, and I, I would never disconnect labor from the racial uh, justice movement, including George Floyd. Uh, in the in the resurgence of Black Lives Matter, because what you saw there was not the same conversations that were taking place, I think, in the earlier part of the decade, in the 2010s, with something like Eric Gardner's death, mm-hmm. which was kind of in a very strict political model of just saying racism is still in existence. The GOP is purveying this type of racism. And it's a it's a just black and white, literally civil rights mentality of just this is structured racism come george floyd's death in 2020 the conversation is suddenly pivoting to this is institutional this is economic this is what's meant to happen and it's engineered to divide us it's no longer this abstract there's clans members who are doing these things they're understanding that it is the system that is leading to the deaths of these black people black individuals it's it's much more complicated than how we were being presented it. And that connects directly in the work, the groundwork that went into that is still reverberating in somewhere like New York City, where I am, that a lot yeah. of these groups were formed out of those protests. And they're doing the nitty gritty work that these the union movement and the organized labor movement did in the past that actually gets the gains that we lost by Again, taking our hands off the wheel and saying, well, we got our victories. I guess it's going to maintain itself. Uh, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. It, yeah, you can right. never, ever cede ground because these people, these the enemies, whatever you want to call them, fascist capitalists, it does not matter. The power havers are never going to surrender. That's why they were in positions of power in the first place. That's why they're in the game. We're in the game because we have to survive. We are literally well, you know, fighting for survival. Um, I, I I heard something. I went to the uh, the showing of the Wobblies uh, a couple of months ago. I, I, time is kind of uh, mixed up in my head anymore. But <laughs> I went to you know the, the pandemic really screwed things up for a lot of us. But but I went to the showing of the Wobblies movie in uh, in Seward Park in Manhattan mm-hmm. at with Cinemaville and. Uh, Several of the people there were talking about what is essentially budding mutual aid networks. Yeah. And this this is a thing that really propelled 
uh, the left. It propelled anarchism. It propelled, propelled communism. It propelled the IWW. And it is this idea that, you know, we have to help each other. And we have these um, formal or informal networks that allow us to feed each other, to take care of one another's medical needs uh, as best as possible, you, which used to be very robust, actually. Like there was a workers insurance among workers, not through uh, not through work itself, not through any sort of, uh, of company, but through unions or through a mutual aid network of, uh, of fellow workers. So um, I'm hearing some of this, you know, that we're, that people are beginning to talk about. And you see it in that culture, you know, we we're talking about in the 70s that, you know, in your union hall, you have um, life like in the church, you know, life circulating through that and life events and uh, and people talking about what they might need in terms of uh, of help, of assistance. But I'm beginning to see that again. And, uh, and you know, with brand workers, for instance, mm-hmm. in uh, New York City here. Like actual uh, institutional foundational uh, structures that help that are uh, allowing working people to help themselves. But yeah, let's let's do this. Tell me some so tell me some of the conversations that happen. So this this event, you know, you have Chris Smalls, you have people with the, with Amazon, you have people talk from some of the Starbucks unions that are popping up everywhere. It's, it doesn't seem to be uh, covered in the news much. But they're smaller because the, the actual Starbucks locations themselves don't hire a lot of people per location. But there are tons of them coming up. And uh, I heard someone say, where was this? Um, it might have been at the conference, but they said, you know, the the IWW organizing of a decade ago at these Starbucks is really what you're seeing come to fruition now, whether it's officially wobbly or it's not. It's it's. It's coming to the surface as an actual organizing success. And, uh, and all of this is, is, you know, a previous way of doing organizing. It's not what we learned, you know, in business unions from 1985 or something like this. But what was your experience talking with people in this at this conference, the informal type of uh, networking? I hate that term, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's my biggest thing. This is not any conference like the ones I've been to previously. I've done, you know, the dog and pony show of you know, <laughs> the kind of classic networking that a lot of people unfortunately have to do, including myself. And yeah. this was much more on the level of how'd you get involved in the labor movement? Genuine questions of what brought you to this? Why do you find interest in it? Where do you see yourself aligned? Lots of different perspectives. I mean, you know, we had Trotskyist, we had Marxist Leninist, we had anarchists, we had syndicalists, we had everybody. It's a big tent. And oftentimes it leads to hassles in the left movement. I mean, you know, conservatives have plenty of disagreements, but they're lockstep more or less. They don't they kind of know how the game works. Organized power, yeah. power in numbers. They they'll have their arguments after the fact, and I'm sure they're looking forward to that. But the left is always having those arguments before anything gets done. You can look to Spain, anything. There's a million examples of it. But I think that that, and you pointed to it, that there was this type of unity. At no point did I want to get on a grandstand with a bullhorn and go, business unionism and craft unionism are goddamn destructive, and any win, any contract won by those unions is a joke, and the workers should throw off the, you know, blah, 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 blah. That was not what this conference was about. The conversations I had with people are, what are you doing? Have you won? What are you doing that should be done differently? It was it was like a carpenter talking to a fellow carpenter 
about their craft. I really that, had that impression. I'm glad you said that. It was very practical. Yes, it was it was a business conference of people who hate business. <laughs> That's the best way to phrase <laughs> right. it. Of people who realize that we're not here to trade pity stories. We're not here to reminisce about the strikes at the Passaic textile factory. We're not here to mourn the Triangle Shirtwaist factory. We're here to make sure that shit, mind my French, never happens again. Yeah. And that we are the ones controlling the narrative now. We are the ones who are finally going. Labor has, it never died. It took, it licked its wounds and took a break. And we needed to kind of had that sobering moment of, oh, this can be taken away from us to realize that we can never let it be taken away again. And so the conversations I had were very, very much in the line of just, what's it like at your workplace? What even brought you in? I I talked to uh, a gentleman from Texas who's a laborer down there. He does work in pipes and buildings and construction. And that's a worker. I was joking with him. I'm like, look, I can complain about my retail job all the time. At the end of the day, I go home and I'm wearing a damn suit. I sell suits. I'm a suit salesman. <laughs> Not the most taxing work physically. It's more taxing mentally. And I hate the work, but it's okay. And to know that in a state like Texas, which is going through its own issues internally with politics and yeah. the effects that that has on organized labor, to hear someone explain, you know, I'm at my union and they were you know, very leftist critiquing Bernie from the left. This person works in Texas. That just dispels that myth. That at some arbitrary border, the people there are different. We were having discussions on how important labor was to us, and we come from completely different worlds. And that, to me, was the most vital aspect of this conference, because it's the first conference since the resurgence of labor, if we're going to call it that, in the post-pandemic world. Is that we all were doing this stuff, and we're like, hey, 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 you know, online. This is going on. What's happening? What's, what is this? And we're kind of talking in this abstract way. This gave us the opportunity to really connect and explain we're on to something here. And it's no longer a theory. It's no longer this abstract, disconnected movement. It is a strongly connected movement to the extent, and as a wobbly, I'm looking forward to see it, that you have this generation of people coming into leadership positions within these unions, these new unions, these uh, traditional unions, as we take uh, as the membership becomes more uh, my generation, you're going to see solidarity that you hadn't seen previously because we're getting that rank and file mentality down now. And we're making yeah. sure that the work being done is done collectively. I really felt uh, what you're, you're alluding to there about the practicality and the technical focus of this overwhelmingly. Uh, you know, I, I read I read a lot and I, and I love to think about big problems and abstract problems. Uh, so, I, I, you know, all of the big left superstars, I, I've read them or I am reading them or et cetera. But at the same time, these problems are day to day, quotidian ground problems that have to be dealt with in usually a very boring way, even though they might have these grand uh, heroic, you know, uh, movie-esque cinematic uh upswings and to hear the practicality of of people's focus is really inspiring i'd never encountered that you know my experience my experience with left with labor notes uh from years ago was uh about 
a, a very doctrinaire leftist type thing. I don't want to go further because it it's just negative and it's, it's pointless. But, um, you know, it was this old school sort of thing about Trotsky or something, <laughs> which which might have significance. I mean, especially, you know, this is you, you talked about uh, these these squabbles among people on the left. And, uh, you know, I've been in environments where people want to choke each other because of some disagreements over what libertarian socialism versus anarcho syndicalism is. And um there's no reason to have these discussions because you, you've lost everything. So exactly what pie are we dividing up? You know, in the Pyrenees in the 30s in Spain, you actually had uh, a, a, a distinction between council communism and anarcho communism that had significance in those communities. And, uh, and you had driven the fascists out. So, yeah, you could have these discussions. But we don't need to be having them. We really have uh, no serious left in the United States. So to have any sort of, you know, theoretical discussion about how you're going to distribute uh, labor, the, the fruits of labor from someone uh, is has no meaning. So this is beautiful. What do you see? Uh, what do you see going forward? Like as a focus on this, you, you've obviously you worked with people, you met people and spoke with people at the conference. And it was like you were saying, it's really inspiring to, to hear this. Uh, I couldn't get enough of it. So what do you see going forward? What were people talking about is a, a next step? I think that in general, and a lot of it has to be general because it was just such a <laughs> wide-ranging conference. I think the joke of the day on Sunday was that I could have stayed here another week. We yeah. we were annoyed that it was only three days. I don't I don't know if you could ask anybody who's gone to a like a, a conference for work <laughs> if they'd want to stay longer, and they would say, "Oh yeah, I'd love to learn more about uh, the best uh, best practices in uh, market economics." I'm a, I work for a trust fund. Or so, I, like there's nothing. Yeah. Th- really, there's nothing like this. And I, I saw somebody describe it. I forget where this was like Labor's Coachella. That almost implies we were just partying. Holy crap. That was such a that was only like Saturday night. I, I walked around. I'm like, oh, now it's getting like a party. Like, <laughs> There's a little bit of that going on here. But day to day, hour to hour in these workshops, you might as well have been having. This collection of some of the greatest minds in this country in the labor movement from so many different backgrounds, from so many different worlds coming together to really just go, what's the next step? Because I think that was the main kind of like the. The sword hanging over our heads is, OK, you have this moment, you know, you've you've made Howard Schultz a little uncomfortable. You made Jeff Bezos you know, look behind his back once or twice, but they're not sweating yet. They're not they're not at the point where they're really going to. And I explained it. This is like kind of a somewhat pessimistic take is, you know, we're winning when they start bringing the gun thugs back. There are no gun thugs right now. There were no gun thugs at Columbia when the student workers were on strike. Those will come when we're winning. They'll start getting more aggressive towards us. We're not winning right now. We are simply getting that foot back on solid ground. We're not on the back foot entirely. We're starting to get our footing back. We're winding up a punch. That conference was the winding of the punch, in my opinion, of explaining, okay, we have this movement started. We have this. How do we keep that fire burning? especially in the time when people lose interest in something almost immediately. I, I, I've been shocked. That was my biggest fear when it first started happening. 
that this would be another passing trend, that something would take over in the mindset. And it has been inspiring that even with everything going on, including Roe v. Wade, including everything going on with the Supreme Court in general, everything that's happening in this very chaotic world of ours, inflation, yada, yada, yada. The labor movement, internally and externally, is still clearly growing. We are on an upward trajectory. Nothing has impeded it so far, and it's new, it's fresh, it's young. This might age like milk, this conversation. But right now, we're on an upward trajectory. And I think the main point of, of discussion for us was, what is the next step? And to me, my take on it, and obviously I'm slightly biased as a wobbly, is the idea that it's going to be more democratic than it's ever been before. Sean O'Brien being elected as the head of the Teamsters, the Teamsters Democratic Union, and basically threatening the lives of <laughs> the heads of UPS yeah, and other companies right. that the Teamsters represent is an indication that this is half his union. Now they're saying this. It, it is a very, very clear shift in mentality. And, and it is a mentality that was necessary to continue the trend of my generation getting involved because my generation is simply sick and you're seeing it in the response to what happened with Roe v. Wade. I saw it on the streets in the protest. It's no more, oh, the Democratic Party will save us. So we got to send money to the Democratic Party. There were chants about, you know, fuck the Democrats. Yeah. They screwed us by not addressing this. We're done negotiating. It's no longer a passive role. We are activated. We're not going to let a rep represent us. We're going to represent ourselves. And See, this is oh, start. I was just going to insert that, to give it like okay. a final. Just yeah, it is a, just a much more democratic movement. It's a much more rank and file led movement. Yeah. And I, I feel, you know, what you're referring to with Roe v. Wade, uh, you know, one of the sad things that's happening right now that's actually potentially a, an opportunity something good is that there's a crisis of perception management occurring you know the democrats are always there as the good cop they are there to mitigate the nastiness of of capitalism and to say you know we're going to allow you to have uh to marry whom you want you won't have health care and you won't have a good job you won't have a future maybe but you will have that freedom or you could smoke weed if you want, but you won't have these other things that are necessary for a decent human life. You could smoke weed. And um, and they were always offering that if you didn't vote for this corporate, horrible, anti-union, uh, backstabbing Democrat, Roe v. Wade would be overturned and you, you want us to fight for it. You know, I got a, an email the other day. Uh, I, I think it was I don't know if it was right after or before the revelation of the, the uh, repeal. And they said something about, you know, we can still force Susan Collins to live her values. Please donate twenty five dollars. So that, and I thought, you know, it's nonsensical. Like for doesn't even the statement doesn't make sense to force someone to live their values. And, and how are you going to do this anyway? It doesn't make sense. Like the Pope turning Biden to the left. What, what are you even talking about? I knew this was nonsense. And some of us have laughed at it and been enraged about it for years. But, you know, you referenced the Soviet Union. Board. That was a thing for years when I was when I was a kid. Well, you know, if if you don't do this, 
the country is going to be taken over. If you don't do this, you know, you're going to have this slide into this authoritarianism and so forth. And even when we were all clearly already sliding that way for other reasons, you know, and, and the Soviet Union became uh, in many ways as capitalistic as the U.S. without, mm-hmm. you know, but with with healthcare and things like this. But clearly, uh, like this was a ruse so that you give in to the good cop or you could be a monster and, and a fool and just give in to the bad cop and be a racist and all the rest immediately. But now it's very difficult to talk about any reward from participating in this this game, this uh, circus, because it's all being taken away. So I, I think it's it's an opportunity as ugly as that is because they're 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 you know Miranda they're coming after that I think they've already repealed uh, in certain states the need mm. for Miranda and they're they're going after gay marriage they're going after contraception I mean they're just pushing everyone off a cliff so uh, there's nothing really they can offer and if they're not doing anything about climate change uh, they've already like taken the future off the board so um yeah it's it's this ugliness presents itself as a potential opportunity and and i see that uh we've been talking about an hour here which is a pretty good length but uh we can uh let's do you have anything to add as we kind of wrap up on this yeah if you're even like closing just to give it a nice little bow sort of closing <laughs> i mean we don't have to but you know it's a it's a good length and uh and i i really i'm, I'm intrigued by you know, what what the future is going to hold on this, which I guess, you know, just to, to look at that, what do, what's the next step in uh, in terms of, of conferences, in terms of meetings, in terms of any follow up from what you picked up at Labor Notes? I think that to me, the main the main takeaway from it was that the most important aspect of this type of work is that it has to be engaging. It has to directly meet people face to face. And meet them on their level and go, hey, this isn't, you know, you don't send money to a to an email. That's not how this is ever going to get fixed. And again, people are waking up to that reality that no one is coming to save us but ourselves. We're the only ones who can actually put that line in the sand because at the end of the day, Bezos and crew can literally lift off on a spaceship. They're never going to experience the horrific effects of climate change. They're going to disproportionately affect working class minorities. We are the only ones with the ability to stop ourselves from receiving the worst of it. And it requires direct action. It requires mutual aid. It requires community organizing. And all of it's interconnected. We're finally kind of putting the pieces together of what we viewed as different movements as unified. And I'm coming from the perspective that organized labor provides the best way to achieve all of our goals. We can address climate change through organized labor. We can address racial divisions through organized labor. And I think my generation, with the help of the generations before us, are getting to that point where we're starting to understand. And what the Wildbees have been saying for a long time is having the hands of in the working class, having the working class have the. Oh, excuse me. I got If you wouldn't mind editing that, I got caught up in my words. <laughs> I got stumbled on my big pronunciation. Uh, And as an IWW member, the idea that the union had always deposited is that one big union of all the working class people together can make the world stop. We put our hands in our pockets 
and we have the capitalist whipped. It is true. It was true then and it's true now. And I think that mentality is going to become very clear as time goes on. Is there another um, uh, high point in terms of like a conference or gathering that you see coming up? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, For a specific event, I think that we're going to see the big box retailers. We're seeing Starbucks. We're seeing Amazon. And now Apple is in the fray. Chipotle is trying to trying to unionize. Now, I know I saw that there is a filing going on. Mm. We're seeing these impossible to escape brands facing organized labor. And what might be viewed through the lens of some people, which is not true. Trust me, I've seen the Chipotle workers. I've seen these folks. They're all different age groups, all different backgrounds, all different ethnicities and races, all different education levels. It is very, very diverse. But we're going to see more and more impossible to ignore unionization efforts. That's going to have to culminate in a mass unionization effort. There is simply no way to contain this type of momentum if we maintain it. Well, we're going to see labor notes probably have to have more than one convention every two years. I was considering writing to them being like, we ju- you just increased your attendance by that times four. You might as well start holding this. I would almost recommend, you know, twice a year, but that might be pushing it too much. But we clearly need to keep this momentum going. And I think that seeing these wins, another really big win in a big, big company that everyone knows. Hell, Tesla. If Tesla unionizes, I mean, that puts Elon Musk right in the spotlight. He's been hogging the spotlight to do his little, you know, spouting of his own beliefs, but we're going to make him sweat if we unionize Tesla. So there's really just, I can't, I would never say a movement's defined by one moment. I think it's easy to view it in that lens, but it's almost better that it's not right now because then people could say, oh, we did it. Oh, we achieved it. Or, oh, that's the end of it. They can stop one Starbucks store from unionizing, but they can't stop everyone. And we're just clearly, we have the momentum in our hands right now. And it's only going to get worse for them and it's only going to get better for us if we keep the fight up. Well, you know, I heard something uh, from a number of people as I was listening, of course, through Zoom. I'm here in New York in my studio, actually. Uh, but what I what I heard a number of people say two things that really uh, affected me. One is people are talking about just what you said, not only unionizing a particular store or a particular plant or whatever, a particular uh, warehouse, but joining these efforts together. And I, I think if you're actively working on these projects, you're going to hit upon that idea. And that idea is classical left power. That's where the anarchists in the United States in the early 20th century, late 19th, the uh, communists that were before that and after that, the actual grassroots communists, not the, the Soviet Union and such, were, were talking about taking these efforts and weaving them together so that you have an actual base of working class power. And if you want, you can shut a city down. You can shut a country down and eventually, you know, in this dream, which may be a reality at some point, you shut a a planet down and change it through doing that. And I heard people talking about that. I thought, you know, when I've heard this before, in many cases, it's been in reference to a book, in reference to a particular writer or somebody from 1910 
11. Who, and, and I'm not knocking that. That's wonderful. You know, if, if I have any effect in the world and someone and there is a future and someone references something wonderful I did or, or created or, or said, uh, I hope that, you know, I can have a positive effect in that way. But I don't want to be uh, like these people, someone that, you know, you can use to beat people with this dogmatism and nostalgia. And so th- these people did wonderful things, but wonderful things lie ahead as well. And so I, I, I love the fact that people were, ta- were talking about this older plan that's, that's genuine and, and very powerful, but not referencing that nostalgia and that you know, dogmatic academic uh, of study of what happened, but talking about this as a practical plan for tomorrow that that we should be looking at because it is it's logically this is what you do you organize a starbucks what's the next thing you organize the next starbucks and then you talk to the people at chipotle talk to people at amazon and you start weaving them together what do you think this is the second thing and it's uh we can we can take this as we go out but i'm not against electoral politics i'm not someone who wants to focus on electoral politics so I'm 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 not agnostic about it. I think anything that helps working people have power is good in that sense. So if electoral politics helps us, great. But there was talk of the need for a, a workers party. Oh, can you talk about that and talk about like conversations you had? And I, if you if you want to dismiss or praise the idea, I don't hold it up to you. No, I, I'm happy to talk about it. I have my own takes on it. And of course, everything I say is, is biased to some degree from my own experiences and my beliefs. But I can say sure. I have practical experience in the world of electoral politics because I ran for office. I ran what for office. What did you run for office as? Uh, state Assembly on Long Island. I, I ran in District 8. Uh, and I ran as a Democrat. And yeah. at that time, I was, trust me, uh, delusioned, like any disillusioned as anybody else. And... I did it, obviously, because in our country, it's a two-party system. It's a completely arbitrary system. It, it, there's nothing democratic about the United States. It, it, it is so so blatant in how undemocratic it is to the extent that the Supreme Court can essentially invalidate <laughs> a person's existence because, yeah, they felt like it. And yeah. what can you do? And we, I think, and this is my take, and I, I almost say it became even more, like I was joking, I don't think I could become more radicalized than I am, but then you read something, you see something, you experience something, you get pushed more. And while I was running, I realized, you know, George Floyd was happening. And when George Floyd happened, I said, folks, if you give me a single cent, I promise you, it's not going to be as important as donating to these causes. And I posted uh, different uh, groups. I posted, I know there was... um bail funds for people getting arrested or protests. I said, this is a better way to spend your money because you know what the truth is? This is going to have a direct impact. You can give me that money in a race that I'm not likely going to win. Very conservative district. I ran to make to make it clear, never seed the ground. And that this guy who's so blatantly anti-union is not going to be allowed to say that type of crap without hearing something from me. Like I made it clear that I'm running to showcase that we have the power to make a change. I wasn't running to be like, I'm going to wave my wand. Because to be honest, if I had been elected, the Democratic Party would have hated me. I would have called for Cuomo's impeachment immediately. 
I, they would, it would have been such a terrible relationship with the party, which is exactly what I wanted. But I knew, I knew that I felt almost wrong to be running. And I had always, I always referenced anybody who knows me will roll their eyes because I reference it all the time. But the old Roman tale of Cincinnatus, the Roman senator who was given dictatorial powers to handle a threat, he handled it. They told him, oh, Cincinnatus, you're the greatest. You want to be dictator for life? And he said, nah, I'm going to go back to my farm. And that right. was it. He said, I do not want that kind of power. And the adage is, you know, anybody who seeks power should not have it. It's inherently worrying for someone to say, trust me, I'll take care of you. And that's why I felt like such a hypocrite while I was running. Not that I didn't believe that I could maintain my ethics in the position. I hope I could. I'll never know because I wasn't elected. But I was nervous. And I realized at that point, which is when I started paying dues to the IWW, that I would much rather lead a movement for, as a member of a movement than be a leader in a leader-centered movement. I don't like the idea of being told or feeling that I can tell people, I know what's best for you. You put me in this position of power. Trust me, pal. It's going to work out. I'd much rather be the one working with other people to get that power for all of us. And so when the concept of a new party comes up, and this came up, Socialist Alternative, a Trotsky's group, Hello. was discussing the new, you know, they want a new party. They want their party, the Socialist Alternative Party, whatever they would call it. And an indigenous woman rightfully made a point. She made a, a, a big point of it because she spoke on it twice. She felt she had been ignored the first time and she was righteous. She said, this is the same talk of colonizers. You're just saying the same things that have been said in the past. Have you consulted us? Have you talked to us? We were the first ones here. And we have seen the results of your democracy, your approach to this type of stuff, your parties. They can promise you the world, the pie in the sky, and they will never deliver it. Because in my opinion, this is where my opinion comes in, the system inherently pushes for the people within it, the power structures, to reward themselves and to never seed anything. It's a vacuum. You're going to keep wanting more. No one has ever gotten to be the president and weakened the presidency. It's only gotten more powerful. Congress has never pushed to expand itself. Like the House is so small compared to what it should be to represent the American people because they don't want to, because then they have less power. So political action has its place. It has to. We live in this society currently that exists in an electoral system of a two-party system in the United States. We have to make sure it's not abandoned because then the fascists, which they've already done in the GOP, will win if we cede the ground. The key is to not only use that avenue, because to be honest, it's an avenue that has a dead end to it. We just can't cede it because unfortunately they could use that to crush the real avenue, which is mass organizing, yeah. collective yeah, action. Yeah. So it's not a, I, I, yeah, I'm a Goldman, you know, Every every election is just an opiate for the masses. It just makes you feel good. And you pull the lever. Whoop de do. The world is fixed. I'm not even saying that pulling that lever is going to fix anything. I'm saying it might help us prevent it from getting a little bit worse. It's helping us put a little bit of a block on the downward motion, but it will never save us. Collective action, direct action, organizing people to do it themselves will save us. And that's it. Yeah, I, I agree. I I think my one um, thumbs up for a workers party is that it's a placeholder 
if you you know if you give away these electoral positions and i agree with everything you said i, I have no no uh qualifications to that but you know as you said if you give them away you give away uh, the ability to crush us but i think if we did have a workers party and you had people whether the dsa or i don't know what whatever you, you want to pick but people who aren't going to cave in to capitalist demands but people who are and, and of course aren't going to go further to the right and so forth but people who would hold those positions and at least not join up with these others so you have these placeholders that prevent those spots from being filled with these awful uh democrats or awful republicans i really at this point i'm i'm done I, you know I, I used to qualify myself just a little and say you know like the democrats are horrible obviously but you know there is this little bit of difference and now i i think like most people i'm throwing my hands up who cares but if we had a party that like i said at least openly acknowledges working class in, class interests and could sit in those seats so that you're not filled with one of these other groups that's at least um like a chess move it fills that square on the play, on on the board so that other things down here with with working class power with it, whether it's unions or mutual aid societies or whatever can take place without that interference i, I would feel good about that I was just I'm intrigued. I've, I've always been intrigued by this talk of a workers party because um, it's such a weird minefield to enter. And uh, I don't know how it would be done in a way that I would consider right. You know, they had the workers and farmers party, the progressive party, mm. things like that uh, at the turn of the last century, the 1920th. <laughs> and uh, and when they looked threatening, they were chased and burned basically you know by uh by gilded age interests you know just like the knights of labor kind of uh fell to pieces on things like uh greenback movements you know yes. about the dollar yeah. anti-gold or pro-silver or whatever uh all that you know which is largely nonsense i think but uh, regardless like there were the iww too it's you know it was attacked obviously by the uh by the Palmer raids, but then it it started blowing itself up in the 20s as well with you know internal squabbles, EP and Fortray and things. And uh, and I think at this moment I would prefer to have the opportunity of blowing up a wonderful thing <laughs> and <laughs> you know not having a wonderful thing at all. So uh, a workers' party I'm for in that limited sense that I think it would it could occupy those seats. And prevent these others from getting in, and they would at least have to pay this open lip service. You know, somebody told me, uh, I've forgotten who who said this. It was someone much older. They were talking about uh, corrupt union corruption in the 70s, and the the point they made. I said, well, a lot of these people were taking more money than they were supposed to get, and were uh, enjoying a lot of like under the table benefits and things, and uh. I almost remember this person was a man and he said, you know, the thing is that there was such a working class movement and there was such union strength that even if you knew that was, this guy was a corrupt, corrupt SOB, he still had to do the right thing. Basically, he stuck his hand in the pie a little extra. He was taking a little more than he should have all all true. 
but basically he's still kind of doing the right thing because he knew that you're watching him and he's got to toe the line to some extent. And after that, as you go into the 80s and things got weakened, horribly working class power was weakened after Reagan's move, um, they could do whatever they want because people were, were in this, uh, you know, rear guard retreat sort of thing. But uh, but this is re- this is really changing. And uh, I, again, I, I was so inspired with that labor notes conference. And like you said, uh, you know, most of these things you uh, you want to be over. I mean, you uh, you listen, you participate, you attend and you think, you know, what am I going to do for this party and what can I do uh, afterward? And, you know, how much more time is this going to involve? But uh, I, you know, even as I'm not attending, but I'm listening, you know, through Zoom, I thought, wow, you know, I I could spend more time listening to this. It's just wonderful to hear people this excited and this really doing things, successfully doing things. It's it's life changing. That's the only way to maintain any movement is to actually provide deliverables, to have action goals. It cannot just be abstract which i think is what turned a lot of people off to certain movements in the past is that you're just talking in abstracts what yeah. it, with labor it's easy to provide a win it said how much money did you get in your pocket before you had a union how yeah. much did you have health care benefits like there is clear tangible victories to be had within labor which is why if the movement is maintained correctly it can sustain itself solidarity unionism can keep that energy and passion behind the movement so it doesn't become one of bureaucrats we are we learn from the mistakes of the past and we're making the improvements to make a better future. You know, I think that's a good place to end. But I want to suggest something uh, publicly and maybe uh, you and I could talk about this. Other people in the city and then maybe outside of it. But I, I had this idea that uh, I worked on before that was uh, successful in a very limited way. And it was what would you do? to proactively push things forward in terms of working class power? How would you build very large, successful mutual aid networks? How would you have, um, you know, at least like a network of worker-owned businesses that could mm. interact? I, we did this in Louisville very briefly. A bunch of Wobblies created this thing called Red Horse. And Red Horse was a construction company. It... Um, it was, of course, worker owned. And, you know, we were allotting like if you if you did more work, uh, you made more. I mean, of course. But, you know, like if uh, if you put more hours in and, you know, you were more intensively involved, we pay you a little more. And it was successful. It just, you know, people got distracted and did other things. But uh, it could have been an ongoing thing. And we could link that with something like here. You could have, you know, construction, rehabbing, cleaning. You know, uh, a bakery, things like this that could begin to to interweave. And again, a mutual aid society that could link up with that. You're, you're really looking at a rebirth of, of successes before in a new context. I wonder how like not only how we could do those, but also like what other ideas could be put into practice that could add to these union movements that are becoming successful just to to further strengthen the foundation of this this dynamic this this momentum 
Uh, but that's for a future. I mean, you and I could talk about it. maybe we'll get people together for another episode on that particular topic, like practical, workable things like this. But yeah, that would be great. Dylan, thank you so much for taking your time. Man.